0: joins us today. He is a familiar name to our First Things readers. He is an Anglican priest and he serves at Nashota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. Before that, he was on the faculty at Regent College in Vancouver and Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia. His many writings include the books Heavenly Participation, The Weaving of a Sacramental Tapestry, and Embodiment and Virtue in Gregory of Nyssa. His new book is Pierced by Love, Divine Reading with the Christian Tradition, our topic today. Welcome Professor Buerzma, or, or Father Buerzma, either one.
1: Either one will do. Thank you very much, Mark, for having okay. me.
0: Okay, uh, a quote on page one. Just as scripture is divine, so our reading must be divine now this actually isn't as tall difficult impossible and order as it sounds is it
1: uh, it, it should not be uh, in practice often it is for us um, because we don't do justice to the scriptures in our reading most of the time i suspect um, but really the divine the, the divine scriptures which i purposely call them or i could also have said the holy scriptures uh, require on our part, a disposition that sets us apart, that, that a disposition that is pure, holy, divine. And when I talk about divine reading, therefore, divine scripture, really what I have in mind is, is the holy scriptures. Um, they are set aside for a certain purpose. The scriptures have a unique aim. Uh, they aim to bring us into the life of God. And our reading needs to be in line with that, in sync with that.
0: There is, quote, a hidden meaning, you say, but it isn't esoteric. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's subtle. It's it's not overt, but it, it's it. The penetration to it is it's again, it's it. It doesn't require uh, a certain technical facility, a, a lot of a lot of training. But maybe I should ask, what what is the nature? this of this hiddenness
1: yeah um, this one is a difficult one for us to grasp as moderns and the reason for that is that we tend to uh, look for the one true meaning of the text which we then identify as what it meant to the author authorial intent in other words Um, and um, that would have that isn't that is a view that would have been alien to the entire Pre-modern tradition, and I think, should be alien also to us. Um, what what the Christian tradition reads the scriptures for is Jesus Christ. He's he's at the heart of the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, and he's therefore the, the the hidden content, the mystery hidden for ages, as Saint Paul uh, calls him, and he's the one that we ought to be looking for in in all of our reading. Um, there are different ways in which one can do that, um, and therefore, um, different readers, as they are encountered by the text, by God in the text, um, will will uh, arrive at at varying meanings. Um, but they will all be focused on Jesus Christ and what He does in and through His Church and how He brings us to the to the um, final end of the beatific vision.
0: You know, you mentioned this a side. Question that just just popped into my head when you mentioned the pre-modern tradition relative to this idea of uh, meaning being located in that single authorial intent. When does the the modern tradition begin in in your in your in your sense of of things? Are we talking about the Renaissance? Are we talking about the Enlightenment? Are we talking about modernism? You know, the early twentieth century. What, what what where does the tradition start that you you have in mind?
1: Yeah, um, I don't I don't deal with that question in this book, Um, Mm -hmm. I deal with that in some of my other other work, maybe uh, not here. And the way in which I look at it is um, the question of hermeneutics of how we interpret the scriptures uh, has everything to do with our overall metaphysic, how we understand the creator creature relationship. And that metaphysic began to shift in the late Middle Ages, I think. So prior to the to the Reformation, um, there are certain metaphysical developments in the 14th and 15th centuries that set us on this trajectory. Now, where that comes home to roost um, is really in the 17th century in, in terms of biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, Already, the reformers, of course, have a certain hesitations about the kind of hidden meaning that I just advocated, um, and in particular, when it comes to allegorizing the scriptures, they're they're really quite nervous generally. Um, but but they still have a christological reading of the text, um, and it's not until the 17th century, um, especially through Baruch Spinoza's influence. Um, that you get this strong focus on the historical um, one historical, true meaning of the text. And um, that's when we really cut the link, as it were, between heaven and earth, and and we're focused on these worldly meanings only. Hmm.
0: You warn people against <clears throat> reading scripture precisely as a historian would Now that that you do go into in, in the book here, what is the danger of a historical or historicist or historians reading of, of scripture?
1: Yeah uh, let, me, let me first enter a little caveat, um, namely that, that historical or literal meanings of the text are, are entirely legitimate, um, that we shouldn't balk at them. And we shouldn't try to avoid them for the sake of something else instead, because if we do that, we still have a dualism between historical and spiritual readings of the text. So nothing against historical readings as such. What, What I do protest is the notion that as a biblical interpreter, I'm a historian, first and foremost. I'm not. I'm a Christian theologian, first and foremost. And so I bring all my theological baggage, quote unquote, to the to the text. And it's legitimate, and not only legitimate, but um, in my mind, necessary that all of that enters into my understanding of the text. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm allowed and, and justified in doing this is that um, the biblical text as divine text, God-given, holy, set-apart text, is taken up in divine providence. It's not, it's not a purely historical text. There's no such thing in my mind as pura natura, as pure nature, nor is there such a thing as a purely historical reading of the text, therefore. So um, history is always already subsumed within divine providential oversight uh, and, 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 and guidance. And so that guidance of, God's through, of God through history implies, in my understanding at least, that the climax of history, Jesus Christ, is theologically the origin of all of history.
0: When we get to your layout of divine reading, it's a four-part process, right? Part one is read, two, meditate. three, pray. And for contemplate before getting to those individually, let me let me ask: Where do contemporary readers most often falter? Which of those four activities is difficult, even for Christian readers?
1: Yeah, um, I, I would say um, we falter at the second stage. We do read the biblical text, and we read it historically, and we're searching for its true meaning, quote unquote. Um, But when it comes to meditation, prayer and contemplation, we pull back. So meditation is the first stage, I would say. Um, we, We tend to have a more scientific orientation toward the biblical text. And for that purpose, you don't necessarily need to linger on it. You don't need to meditate upon it. You don't need to memorize it. All those kinds of things that were central to to earlier Christians' readings of the text. Um, so I would say, yeah, it's it's meditation where it begins, and at the same time, I would say it's it's contemplation that probably faces the most strenuous objections.
0: <laughs> huh. I mean, in 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 a way, just just contemplation in general. It, it, It doesn't go very well with uh, the pace of things uh, in our digital age, certainly, I would say. No, it doesn't. uh, I I think that your layout of divine reading is, is proper to scripture, but I think it also inculcates, what would you want to say, psychological habits that go far beyond, right? Understanding Scripture, I, I, I think that this is this is this is good for teaching studiousness, uh, for for teaching the capacity of uh, patience, and you know, entertaining an idea before reacting to it, think about it, and and so I'll I'll uh, even for our secular listeners that that this process is a is a worthy one, and not just for scriptural text, but we'll, we'll move on. The title of the book and the opening of chapter one, address something called the Stabat Mater. What is that, and and why is it so important here?
1: Um, Yeah, Stabat Mater uh, was a 13th century hymn. Uh, The the title simply means um, the mother stood, and the mother being the Holy Virgin, and she stood by the cross, um, looking at her son, her suffering son. And in fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy, um, her heart was pierced. Um, And uh, what the the hymn does, it's a beautiful hymn, by the way. If you want to listen to a recording, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, What the hymn does is it invites us to identify with Mary. And through our identification with Mary, also to identify with her son. Um, and um, when we do that through, through divine reading, uh, through Lexia Divina, when we do that, uh, we open ourselves up and um, we open ourselves up to the pain of identifying with our suffering Lord. Um, that's not only the Stabat Mater Hymn, um, but later on in the book, I mentioned a number of other examples, interpretations. Um, of of the Song of Songs, uh, which also talks about the arrow piercing, piercing the heart. Uh, Psalm 45 has a similar theme. Um, th- this divine piercing runs through the Christian tradition, and as a result, it runs in, in some ways throughout my book. Um, and it's an important theme to me because we sometimes think of Lexia Divina as this sort of soporific thing that, that lulls you to sleep, and it's very sentimental and all that. It's, it's not at all, um, if anything it's the opposite. If we truly read the scriptures and meditate upon them, memorize them, pray over them, we're confronted with ourselves. And being confronted with ourselves is often like a sword painfully piercing our heart. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah. John Clemachus makes the point of, uh, somewhere, um, he, he talks about Karma Lupe, and I, I refer to it in the book, um and, and a word that he makes up it's his innovation and it's made up of of two words karma and lupe um, joy and grief the two come together um in in lexio as we meditate upon the scriptures sometimes the one the one predominates sometimes the other but they're both part and parcel of divine reading
0: yeah all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You you say on page 28, quote, the truth or reality of scripture is beyond words. And here you're you're actually paraphrasing the the 12th century writer William of Saint-Thierry. When we leave the words, when we go beyond the words, uh, Hans, wh- where do we go? How do we, how do we apprehend that, that reality that is so much more than words?
1: Yes, um, that reality is, is Jesus Christ, uh, the eternal word of God, who is therefore word, but who is, as um, some authors would have, not only word, but also silence. Um, one and the same thing in God. <clears throat> what for us is multiple, and can only be grasped uh, in time and space. Uh, time and space—that's indispensable. And I, I highlight and emphasize that in, in my book. Um, that for God is is one and the same. For God is simple. God is beyond multiple words. God is beyond time and space. And so the aim of the human life, the aim of our pilgrimage through time and space is the happiness of God, the beatitude of God, which is simple. And what Lectio Divina is it, it is, it is a, a um, way of reading that aims at that union with God in Jesus Christ, beyond words, beyond time and space
0: you know, that, that process, it, 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 it lifts you up, it, it elevates you, it raises you above, above the world, so to speak, which sounds like a, a very good thing. But you actually call it, uh, well, you say it's difficult for many people, including Christians, whom you say suffer from a kind of, quote, spiritual acrophobia. It afflicts them, it is, it is a specimen of acrophobia. What, what is the problem here?
1: Yeah, so acrophobia, uh, fear of heights, fear of ladders. Um, the, the theme of ladders runs throughout the tradition, east and west. No difference, really, whether you're in the east or in the west. It runs throughout Christian tradition. Um, we're, we're, we've become nervous of that. Um, I, I can't tell you how often I haven't heard the objection to lecture divina and to spiritual reading of scripture um, that it's otherworldly. And by that's definition, bad. Presu- that's a, presumably by definition, that is a bad thing. Yeah. And, and I, I would say the opposite um, it is in and through this worldly gifts of God that we are lifted into another world, that we're lifted up into the life of God Himself. Um, and hence, the ladder language. We identify ladder language, especially probably Protestants, but not only Protestants, um, would identify ladders with moralism. Um, you know, earning your own salvation uh, with elitism. Um, it's it's only for the chosen few. Those sorts of things. They right. can reach the ladder by their own efforts. But when you read, say, the Rule of Saint Benedict, it's all about humility. It is all about lowering yourself. And it's by emptying yourself, in imitation and in participation with our Lord, uh, in union with our Lord, that we are lifted up, um, that we are we are taken into the divine life. Um, so so, this this language of a ladder is indispensable, and we shouldn't confuse it with pride. <laughs> Yeah. Or with with making our way up there somehow, it's the very opposite.
0: You you've got a great image there of that famous icon, the ladder of divine ascent. And I'll, I'll say the word, Lexham Press did a wonderful job producing this book. It's a lovely little volume, and and it does have wonderful images uh, in inside as well. And is that the the reason a, a lot of a lot of theologians today even they don't like the ladder metaphor. They believe it's an invitation to pride. Is is that the concern?
1: That's part of the concern, definitely. Uh, it's an invitation to pride because if you have to climb the ladder by yourself and you've done it and you're at the top, finally, you've made it. Yeah. So the ones who are closest at the top or perhaps even who have reached the top, um, they, they can be proud that they made it. Yeah. So it's this, this self-made man kind of image uh, that we object to. Um and, and um, I would say again, no, <laughs> it, it, it's the opposite. So, so I, I, I suspect, let me, say, let, me, let me rephrase this somewhat. I suspect that part of the fear of the latter imagery is um, that it requires us to analyze ourselves, to look at ourselves, to question ourselves, um, it, it's the introspection, the introspective conscience of the West that Krista de Stendhal used to talk about in the 1980s. That's, that's often what's behind this. And hence, we object not only to St. Augustine's introspection, but also to the introspection that you find in, say, the Desert Fathers and others. And I would argue that without introspection and without recognition of our own sinfulness as a result and our own limitations as a result. Um, Without introspection, we don't find, we don't locate um, the spiritual point of union um, that God has given us as part of our human creatureliness. Um, And and the Christian tradition has, in the past at least, in the pre-modern period at least, Recognize that need to turn inward. Without a turn inward, um, there is no there is no um, entering into the life of God.
0: The next chapter, speaking of inwardness, you you, you carry forward into uh, another condition that afflicts many people. This time, not not the acrophobia, but the uh, acidia or achadia. I've heard it pronounced different ways. Rusty Reno here has written about this. Your chapter is very strong on on this condition. What is it? And why is
1: it so
0: widespread today?
1: Um, The question as to what it is, usually it's translated, most often it's translated with sloth, which is a fine translation, although limited. Sloth is part of it. Um, the, The best way to look at it perhaps um, is to look with, with uh, St. Thomas Aquinas both to the past and to the future. It has a past element and a future element. So with regard to the past, it is it is sadness, um, tristitia, as he calls it. It's, it's um, a looking at our lives and having a sense of meaninglessness. It, it, it hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't taken us anywhere. Yeah. Um, we feel lost and and that in turn uh, makes us makes us look to the future with despair despair is very closely tied in with with um, um so it's 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 also boredom uh, despair boredom um, tidium is what what uh, thomas aquinas calls it so there's these two elements the past is not worthwhile and therefore the future uh, is is hopeless Uh, and so we're stuck we're stuck and what we do when we're stuck is we flail all over the place and we 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 run everywhere in order to find what we really need without any sort of proper telos or purpose in mind and so what the what the what the um, monastic authors that i look at often often insist the monks um do is to stick to their cell not to run away because as you mentioned earlier the the real issue here is is the ability to pay attention and not to be distracted a distraction is the main affliction of our modern society certainly not only a medieval issue is the main affliction of our society we are terribly distracted in all sorts of ways, I don't. I hardly need to give you examples. Yeah. <laughs> We're terribly distracted, um, and so our challenge, as as was the challenge for medieval monks, our challenge is the ability to pay attention. How do we do that? Can we pay attention? How do we learn that? I am um, convinced that when we learn to properly pay attention, not be impatient, as you as you as you mentioned earlier, but to stick with it and to carefully attend um, th- that's where that's where the the road lies as it were toward getting rid of some of our mental mental hang-ups as it were and 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 to be able to focus and and not to despair at where that's going to take us
0: yeah speaking of medieval monks and Solitude and silence and contemplation. Let's we'll, we'll jump to toward the end of the book, where you discuss the film Into Great Silence. Yes. And this uh, cluster of, uh, of guys hanging around this uh, grand chartreuse. Who are these guys? Yes. What are they doing?
1: Um, well, some of them, some of them are, are producers and, and filmmakers, and others are monks. Um, it um, the, the producer is is Philip Groening, uh, German producer, and um, he had to he had to uh, wait for sixteen years before he could finally before he finally got the permission uh, from the monks at the Grand Chartreuse to 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 uh, film this uh, the material for this for this production. Um, and I, I suspect one, one um, underlying reason why he refers to the film and why he calls the film <laughs> into great silence is that it was a long, silent period of waiting for him. Um, but, but of course, the, the real reason for, and, and the main reason for the title of, of the film is that Cartesian monks uh, live by and large, at least, a life of silence, um, and that silence penetrates the entire film. It, it marks the entire film. Uh, yeah, there are noises here and there and, and they stand out actually because of the because of the rest of the silence, but it's not like there's a plot with lots of talk, with lots of debate, none of that. It's, it's silent and the monks go through the cycles, yet another day with the exact same rhythm.
0: Do, do the Carthusian monks pray in silence?
1: Uh, yes, they pray in silence although they also pray in 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 um uh in, in unison in the liturgy together mm-hmm. so it, it's not strict silence yeah um, but you, a lot more silence than any other any other order
0: yeah i mean the film the film imparts that very nicely it, was, it came out about 15 years ago i think it was it was a big hit uh, maybe a surprise to a lot of people because of its contemplative silent Portrayal of these contemplative, silent, silent holy men. Uh, you actually say that the preposition "into" in the title "Into Great Silence" is important. What is the importance of that word?
1: Um, the importance of that word in the English version of the title, which is different from the German one, but the, in the English title, um, has to do with the ref, with the ultimate reference. Um, uh, with regard to silence. The ultimate reference is God himself. And and we're entering into that silence that is God. Um, The one who's beyond all our um, distractions. The one who's beyond also all of our words. And the one who certainly is beyond all of our noises that we produce. Um, the, The aim of of um, life at the Grand Chateuse is to enter into God. And Lecture Divina aims at that union with God, at that union with silence, that aims at entering into silence itself.
0: Uh, la- last question, Hans. You, you actually, in reference to what you just said, you put it this way. We cannot but fall silent when faced with the reality of the love of God. Now, I, I, I agree. I think that's true as well. But what do you say to someone who replies, no, no, we must burst out in praise. We must sing out loudly. What, what, what's, what, what do you say?
1: I'd say amen to that. <laughs> um, it's, not a, it's not a wrong answer. Yeah, and uh, I would burst out in praise for such a for such an objection to such an objection because it's a really helpful objection in some ways, and it allows me to elaborate a bit more. It's it's a great objection because yes, the the, the scriptures are full of that kind of thing of of praise to God for the redemption that He has wrought. Um, praise is absolutely um, uh, absolutely fitting for for God's condescension to us in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Nothing, no quibble with that whatsoever. And especially in the first chapter, I highlight that we dare not bypass, therefore, the first three steps of Lexio Divina. We need words. Words are good. Words are God's gift. Um, Words on the page, flesh on the cross, are quote-unquote sacramental means that God uses to bring us to himself. No quibble at all. Um, But we have to remember, that our words, even words of praise, cannot possibly do justice to who God himself is. Um, We need what what the tradition calls an apophatic element. We need a negative element. Um, We cannot capture or comprehend God, after all, with our words, even not with our words of praise. Um, For words of praise to, 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 to somehow come close to God, they'd have to be sung. Forever and ever and ever and ever. And even then God would infinitely transcend them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's more in, in the book that I, I, I certainly recommend. It is called Pierced by Love Divine Reading with a Christian tradition. Uh Father Boersma, thank you for joining us.
1: It was a joy being with you. Thank you, Mark.